P.J. O'Rourke, the legendary bad boy of gonzo journalism, and Andrew Ferguson, the finest prose stylist and wittiest observer in Washington today or for several decades, joining us to discuss their wasted youth and the present predicament, a special Plague Time edition of Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson. PJ and Andy, thank you for making the time. PJ, you're at home. I am. Peterborough, New Hampshire. Exactly right. And Andy, you are in Arlington, Virginia. That's exactly right. All right, boys, to the introduction. Patrick Jake O'Rourke grew up in Toledo, Ohio. He became one of the inventors of gonzo journalism during his decades of writing for National Lampoon, Rolling Stone, and at least a dozen other publications. He's the author of, again, well over a dozen books, including the best book ever written on the way Washington works, Parliament of Horrors. Everybody's entitled to an opinion. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a fact. It's the best. And his book on the election of 2016, how the hell did this happen? P.J. O'Rourke now serves as editor-in-chief of American Consequences. Andrew Ferguson grew up in Illinois and has been writing about politics and culture in Washington since the Reagan years. Now at The Atlantic, Andy has written a number of books, including most recently Crazy You, One Dad's Crash Course on Getting His Kid Into College. New York Times columnist David Brooks has called Andy, quote, the greatest political writer of my generation. And for once... David Brooks was correct. Um, gentlemen, my um, middle son just the other day, hey, Dad, do you know what we call the coronavirus, we kids? We call it the boomer remover. <laughs> on one side of us, the greatest generation. On the other side, our kids, millennials or Gen Xers or whatever they are. You've got three, PJ, Andy, you've got two. But of course it's about us. Uh, we consider ourselves at the very peak of our performance, full of years and wisdom. The kids think we're about to shuffle toward the exits, but how do you grade our generation? How has the baby boom generation of Americans comported itself? PJ? Um, I, I hate to say worst ever um, <laughs> because, because I've got kids, and uh, and, and and you know they've yet to prove themselves completely worthless. But uh, no, I think the baby boom has just been um, uh, an absolute horror show. Uh, we um, uh, we we grew up with uh, way too much uh, prosperity. Uh, parents who were far too kindly and decent, unlike their parents had been. Um, we faced one major challenge in our youth, uh, the war in, in Vietnam, and um, we ran from it as best we could. Um, uh, I, I feel sorry for the guys who got caught, uh, who weren't quite as quick on their feet as, as, uh, as I was. Uh, we faced one great challenge. Uh, we completely flunked that. Um, we've elected a uh, fair number of idiots. Uh, and we've really just topped out recently. And uh, yeah, I would say we're awful. Andy? I can't, I can't argue with that. I'm a, I'm a self-loathing uh, baby boomer myself. And, um, one thing you can say about baby boomers, I think you can, uh, which is that there is a higher number of self-loathers among baby boomers probably than any other generation. So we may be uh, venal and uh, meretricious and stupid, but at least we know it. So is that, is that self-loathing simply the current expression as we get older of a self-absorption that has always been? Oh, I've had, I've had it for years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One really right. unpleasant thing about self-absorption as you get older is who and what you're absorbed in. You know, I mean, uh, when one was young and trim and fit and so on, it was one thing to be self-absorbed. But to be self-absorbed in an old and flabby, not very well, and, uh, and somewhat forgetful person was really. And, I, and, and that's hence the pandemic. You know, every generation gets the, uh, this, is, this is our crisis here. This is our depression. This is our World War II. Um, every generation gets the crisis it deserves. But the one thing crisis is supposed to do is bring people together. We got a crisis that keeps people six feet apart. Um, 
You know, it's interesting, though, that it says that usually people, when they're facing a crisis, you know, they say, this is my own personal Vietnam, but baby boomers can't say this is the baby booms Vietnam because Vietnam yeah. is the baby Vietnam. Uh, gentlemen, all right, PJ's raised the topic, COVID-19, in all but a few thinly populated states, I think the number of states is seven out of the 50. So that means 43 other states We've all been told to walk away from our jobs and stay at home and wear face masks and wash our hands. And for weeks now, tens of millions of Americans have done just that. Does the, does the sheer willingness to obey of Americans in this crisis surprise you, concern you, or does it strike you as entirely appropriate? We should be scared out of our wits and obedience is a simple corollary of that. Andy, what do you think? Well, I remember the great uh, scene in that um, uh, revisionist Western with Dustin Hoffman, Little Big Man, where yes. he meets up with um, uh, Wild Bill uh, Hickok. And Hickok insists on sitting with his back to the wall so he can see the door. And Little Big Man says, well, why, why are you doing that, Bill? Why do you always sit there? And he said, because I'm afraid of getting shot. And that's um, kind of, you know, I'm not too surprised people are all indoors because they're afraid of catching this deadly illness that will, especially if you're my age or over, or even if you're Peter's age, he's much younger than I am, um, you're likely you. to, you're likely to, uh, to buy the farm, yeah. All right, so the conservative Andy Ferguson, PJ, just told us it's entirely appropriate for us to obey meekly. You have gone through life as a libertarian, which is a different stripe of creature. Do I get anything from you, any urge to rebel, any wish that we put up more of a kick over this? Um, I'm absolutely opposed to all of this closing down society and the economy, and I am obeying every injunction to do so to the letter. <laughs> because when it comes to weighing courage versus principle, um, uh, the uh, uh, cowardice won out. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I am, and quite reasonably, I think. Uh, I'm frightened of getting this. Um, I also, I don't, I think there is something that's not, I worry, of course, that, that the government will, is having so much fun bossing everybody around. Mm. Uh, and it won't want to quit having that fun after this is over. Uh, in fact, the government will be reluctant to declare that it's over, or parts of the government will. I mean, who, who, who could possibly imagine a scenario where Andro Cuomo is likable? <laughs> I've, never, I've never heard a single kind word about him in all the time that I have been covering politics, which would be his entire political career. Uh, but just, you know... I, it is going to be tough for them to let go, but I think there's something. I think there's something else going on here. So I really do think that um, um, people do want to help. Uh, people are, and they don't know how they can help. Uh, you can sew a few face masks at home, or one can. I can't. Um, and, and so I really think that they're obeying not so much out of uh, deference to government or like, or even fear of the disease. But out of uh, out of some sort of uh, uh, of desire for better social good, which is is kind of sweet, I think in in, in a way. I'm, I'm I'm touched. A lot of people are putting themselves to huge huge inconvenience and you know deprivation. Andy, you wrote recently the new quarantine regi regime has relieved considerable pressure on the introvert community. The world has caught up with us at last. You're enjoying yourself. I wrote that a few weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of even the 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 introvert in me has started to get a little extroverted. Um, yeah, this has gone on about as long as as I can take it. I'll probably take it for a few more weeks. But uh, I like what PJ said. You know, I've I've actually strangely seen this in in myself which is very unusual to see this kind of fellow feeling in myself but um i hate wearing this mask i have a little homemade mask 
that I keep in my cars for when I go out to the store or whatever. Um, and I, I would not wear the mask except I, it's, it makes people feel better. It doesn't make me feel better, but it makes everybody else feel better. Uh, and so when I go into you're the store- not, You're not surly about it. You do it, I, I confess, I only put on the mask when either it's required, and there's certain stores here in Northern California where you're not permitted in unless you're wearing a mask, or I receive the evil eye from three people in a row. That's my rule. Yeah, I just want- I, I, I hate it. No? I, yeah, I hate it too, but I want people to feel better and feel more comfortable. It's bad enough for everybody as, as it is. So. I'm but thinking of calling. Tried it. This, this interview it ends right now. I've already established that two of you have gone soft. We have. Sweethearts. PJ O'Rourke and Andy Ferguson, what's happened? Yeah, yeah, it's um, um, you know it started with the Trump election and it just went down from hill downhill from there, and the next thing you know, I'm going to be uh, feeling the burn. I, I I don't know what's happening to me, uh, but I actually haven't tried the mask yet. Uh, I have not. You been live off. in Peterborough, New Hampshire. It's I have not been off distance. the property. Really, well, I have not been off the property for six weeks. Uh, which it, I have discovered is just fine with me. I, am, I mean, I'm in a very lucky position. I, I, I'm in a beautiful place up on top of a hill. We've got a bunch of land. And I've just, uh, um, I've discovered I really didn't like to go out anyway. Um, <laughs> and that, uh, uh, you know, other people are, uh, well, was it, wasn't it Sartre that said they're hell? <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, I really don't mind. I've got I got two of my kids home, and um, they're going nuts, of course. But I am I'm enjoying having them around. Um, I, I've got a wife who's masking up and uh, doing the shopping errands, and like the Lone Ranger. And um, um, I, yeah, I honestly, I mean, it, it's it's weird, but I don't really mind it. Okay. Back to the baby, baby boomer, boomers and what we have wrought, products of our generation anyway. This is mandatory uh, for the three of us who got to know each other during the 1980s. How did this happen? How did the United States of America go from, Donald, from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump? Andy? PJ? <laughs> the no, what I'm after here is because okay, there are all kinds of contingency. What I'm after here is is history just one damn thing after another, and sometimes there are happy bounces and sometimes there are bad bounces, or does it say something about the trajectory of the nation, morals, morale, well-being that we go from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump? Power of stupid. Um, libertarianism and conservatism are actually extremely complex philosophies. Uh, I mean, I can give you a couple of, of, of examples for this. Try reading Michael Oakeshott. Mm. Uh, it's just nearly impossible to do. And then there's, uh, I'm trying to remember who, I think it was uh, Chesterfield that pointed out that, that, that being a conservative is actually the hardest work in the world. It's, a, it's an activist proposition. If you have got a red, white, and green post, and you want to conserve that post exactly as it was, a, a post out in the field, a, a pillar or something, and you want that to be red, white, and green, crisp and clean, exactly the way it's always been, you have to go out there and scrub it and paint it and, and, and shoo the birds off the top and keep, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, keep people from ramming their car into it and so on. It actually takes a lot of work to conserve things. And another problem with, with, with conservatism, besides it being hard to grasp, I mean, leftism is very easy to grasp. You don't have anything because somebody took it away from you. We're going to take it back and give it to you for free. Gotcha. Got it. Yeah, got it. No, no problem. Uh, but conservatism is, is, is very, I mean, you know, balancing individual liberty with individual um, um, responsibility uh, is, is just is a terribly difficult thing to do. And it is, and, and, and conservatism easily drifts off into things that are easier to understand, like the sort of populist bigotry uh, that Donald Trump represents. And, um, you know, the left can't drift off into stupidity because it's already there. You know, 
<laughs> but we, we made the mistake of winning. We're a fabulous opposition party. It's great to have Bill Buckley standing, uh, 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 you know, midst the tide of history yelling stop, you know. But then, his, then that tide of history actually did stop, mm. and we were in charge, and it quickly degenerated. Andy, here's Norman Podhoritz. Norman Podhoritz, now 90 years old, former editor of Commentary, father of neoconservatism, maybe the, maybe the grandfather of conservative journalism. Here's Norman Podhoritz on Donald Trump. The fact that Trump was elected is a kind of miracle to save us from the evil on the left. His virtues are the virtues of street kids. You don't back away from a fight and you fight to win, close quote. Andy, can you find anything in there to agree with? Uh, no, no, he's not a fighter. He's, he's just, he's, he's a name caller and he's a, um, he's a spoiled kid. rich kid. Yeah, he's, he's a spoiled, spoiled rich kid. kid who, who uh, you know, generally speaking, got his way um, and always has. And, uh, but he's from Queens, I guess, so that makes him think that he's tough. But he's, you know, he's, if you push him, he's like every other bully. He just backs off and uh, but doesn't really fight for things. People are always saying that he's a fighter. No, he's not. He's not really. He's, he hates the people that he hates. And he's contemptuous of them, just as they're contemptuous of him. But that's quite different from being a fighter. PJ on Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a zombie from the policy cemetery of the Carter era with a stump performance like the living dead, close quote. All right. We've talked about Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. How do we go from the Democratic Party of John Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey and LBJ and your old friend, Andy, Eugene McCarthy, to Joe Biden? PJ? Yeah. Well, the power of stupidity works, uh, works on, on, in, in both parties. I mean, the traditional Democratic Party had a, had a pretty delicate balancing act to do itself. I mean, they, they, they had the left, they've always had that sort of left-wing thrust where we're going to take everything from the rich people and distribute it to the poor. We're, we're, we're Robin Hood. But up until a lot, up until, hmm, I don't know, uh, up until Hillary Clinton, maybe, uh, they always thought they had to balance that with, 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 with some kind of pragmatism. You know, I mean, like, like, the, like the head of the UAW had to balance his anger at the bosses at GM with keeping his members employed. Uh, he couldn't destroy the corporation uh, off of which he, he lived. So Democrats have always had to do the delicate, uh, any par they're a parasitical party and any parasite always has to be careful not to kill its host. Reminder of coronavirus, <laughs> thank you. Um, and, but somewhere they just sort of lost sight of that and, uh, and decided that, that, that they would go with the H.L. Mencken uh, definition of practical politics as the auction of goods about to be stolen. Andy, what would your friend, you, you, you befriended him in his final years. What would your friend, Gene McCarthy, have made of Joe Biden? What would he have made of the Democratic Party today? Uh, I... It's hard to know what his politics were. Uh, at the end of his life, he was very, um, he was sui generis. Uh, you know, he, he quite admired uh, Reagan, loved Jack Kennedy, hated Bobby Kennedy. It was all a very complicated um, set of opinions that he had. Uh, but he was basically, in economics, he was basically a socialist. So I, I don't think that he would be too alarmed by all this. I think what he would, one thing that he would really, dislike is the balkanization is the word we used to use of the party and the um the obsession with different kinds of americans i remember he was amazingly uh kind of disgusted when in the 68 campaign he discovered that his rival robert kennedy had developed a um a, a uh, campaign uh, organization that had committees for uh, 26 different kinds of Americans. And, you know, and that really was quite... Cuban political. Democrats, Italian Democrats. So yeah, on. people didn't, right. 
or, you know, rich Italian Democrats, middle-class Italian Democrats, you know, and McCarthy said, I know Baskin Robbins has 32 varieties of ice cream, but I didn't know there were 32 varieties of Americans. And I think that would quite alarm him that this, this business of identity politics is so essential to the party. Now, back to the 1980s, if I may, back to the 1980s, which is when the first, the three of us first got to know each other. Well, PJ was already a famous journalist. I was a White House speechwriter. Andy became a White House speechwriter. I, maybe the two of you had a more nuanced view of things than I did, but I felt we were getting someplace. And it wasn't just youthful high spirits that the United States stands up to the Soviet Union and it demonstrates the power for good of democracy. And we cut taxes and roll back regulations and demonstrate the power for good of capitalism, that we were establishing permanently valuable lessons. We were reaching conclusions. And today, China is on the rise, communist China, and young Americans who were once the strongest supporters, the most, the disproportionately Ronald Reagan was most popular among the youngest age cohort. They're now the disproportionate supporters of Bernie Sanders. Young Americans are socialists. They're the supporters of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. So did the 19, was I simply deluded? Was it really nothing other than youthful high spirits? Did the 1980s accomplish nothing? How do we, what? I, I, I'm at, I'm, this is a, this is a, you guys handle the humor. I'll try to give a few. I'll be, I'll be Abbott. You be Costello if you wish. But what I'm asking for here is, does any of this mean anything? Did we get anything done with all those efforts of ours that we were pouring out in the 1980s? Andy? Well, it sounds like you fell for the progressive fallacy, which is... <laughs> that history had some kind of direction. And, and, you know, Reagan's rhetoric had a lot of that in it. And I blame you for that, actually. Um, but you know, also partly it's that um, we were wrong about a lot of things. I mean, we all thought that, okay, you, you know, you bring China into the family of nations, uh, let them open up their markets, free market and capitalism will, will compel this kind of democratization. And in, you know, 25 years, we're going to have a liberalized, uh, yeah, China. And of course we were wrong about that. We thought that the collapse of the American family would yield all kinds of hellish social results and crime and so on. It collapsed and actually things like abortion rates and uh, pre, uh, teen, teenage pregnancy are down. So, we, we, you know, life was much more complicated than we thought when we were young. I guess that's sort of an old man's lament, isn't it? Yeah, you well, know, I was would be if, the old, if that old man were making this old man feel better, but you're not. PJ? <laughs> well, I was. I am older than you guys, and I, I was not a kid in the 1980s, and I'd been through my 60s stage of youthful idealism. I turned 40 in the 1980s, and turned 40 during the Reagan administration, and... Um, yeah, I think Andy's right that, that we were wrong about certain things. Uh, wrong or we were oversimplifying them. One, one thing that caught us by surprise was that we assumed, um, given our belief in the self-organizing, the Hayekian self-organizing uh, abilities of human society, we assumed that the newly freed countries behind the Iron Curtain would go out and self-organize themselves in an organized yes. way. Yes. We did not realize how deeply damaged those societies had been by the, by the not, not so much by the oppression of communism, although that too, but by the corruption of communism. We didn't realize what a corrupt structure had been left behind, even when the people who built that structure were gone. So we should have been a little smarter about that. Uh, then um, um, we had this idea and it's an idea that's true, I think, in the long run, but, but it can be the very long run, very long run, is that free markets result in freedom. And they do, eventually. And we must remember that, that Europe had free markets of various forms for hundreds and hundreds of years before those, those free markets resulted in the kind of freedoms that we were talking about. 
But then we got blindsided by something that we, so those two things we should have foreseen, but there was something that we couldn't have foreseen, no one could have foreseen, which was an, a, 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 a sea change in the economy. I mean, equal to the Industrial Revolution, mm. the, the electronic economy comes along. And it's still so new that we don't even yet know what this actually means. But we do know that any fundamental change in economic structure, even if it's a change for the better, is deeply disruptive. And so one of the reasons millennials are such lefties is that the economy that they sort of expected to, 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 to enter as adults has disappeared. They're all mm. making a living by driving each other around in Uber. And, you know, and who can blame them for being mad? Actually, I, my, I took a trip to the airport about six months ago and found myself chatting with the Uber driver who had graduated 18 months earlier from Princeton University. With a PhD uh, in philosophy. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was, it was, he had taken his degree in Hispanic studies. It mm. wasn't, let's put it this way, he was not a computer scientist. Journalism, and speaking of disruption, you've both made your entire careers as journalists. Andy, conservative journalist, PJ, libertarian journalist, they're cousins, slightly different, but cousins. Why does this profession overwhelmingly attract liberals. PJ, you want to go? Oh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And um, I think- We spent years uh, trying to figure it out. Yeah, I really blame it entirely on the the movie uh, 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 version of Watergate, not on Watergate itself, but uh, on the- the, uh, There were all these like uh, uh, well-meaning twerps out there who were going to join the Peace Corps. And then they saw Woodward and Bernstein played by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Never mind that any journalist is going to end up being played by Dustin Hoffman, not Robert Redford. <laughs> but you know, they didn't quite get that through their heads. All, and all, all these little world savers, um, pointless little world savers, well-meaning jerks, thought, oh, no, not the Peace Corps. I'm going to become a journalist. I really think there was a, because up until uh, the Woodward Bernstein era, up until all the president's men, uh, journalists, I mean, I'm old enough to have still worked with these guys. You know, the newsroom was blue with lucky strike smoke. You know, everybody yes. had a, a pint of booze in the, in, the, in the drawer and started hitting it about 10 a.m. You know, and uh, it, it was a, Maybe it tended a little bit to the left, but that was just because that was, you know, the the, the little guy. You know, it was all about right. like supporting the little guy. If it was the left, it was more of a New Deal left. More of a New Deal left, or an old Union solidarity left, or you know, something something like that. You know, a little, little uh, uh, Nelson Algren type of uh, thing. But um, but they but they weren't idealists. I mean, these guys. I mean, Mencken. I, I go back to Mencken. Of course, who wasn't like that? But Mencken said the reason that you become a journalist is it's a ringside seat at the circus. And of course, now uh, they've taken the elephants out of the circus. I mean, all we've got left at the circus is is the little clown car. <laughs> Too many clowns in it. But never mind. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a side point. I really do think it's the world that has got a hold of it. Yeah. Do you remember, this is coming back, first time I remembered it for years, the informal motto of the daily, of the New York Daily News used to be, tell it to the McSweeney's, the Stuyvesants already know. Did you ever hear that one? Oh, yes. It's a beautiful thing, but that's, 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 that's the little guy. We're sticking up for the little guy. That's totally commendable and understandable and conservative in its own own way, own way. Yeah. yeah. Andy, what about... Well, they, well, I think most journalists still think they're, they're doing that. Uh, do? The conditions around them I think that they're standing up for the little guy and that they uh, have contempt for the well-to-do and the rich. The, the thing is, journalism, the, 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 the conditions around journalism have changed so that it attracts a particular kind of busybody. And um, uh a reform-minded sort of person rather than the kind of, you know, just 
just the facts, ma'am, ma'am, and just tell it like it is and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's much more a, a, a profession. It's not a profession. It's much more of a trade for people with a reform minded who want to want to make the world so, look better for themselves. Okay, so take to, to pursue that a little bit. In the old days, and by the old days, I remember, I'm talking about the days in which we were all young men, that journalism, I can remember thinking in college, it would be the coolest thing, actually, it would be the coolest thing in the world to be P.J. O'Rourke, but there were magazines you wanted to write for. Remember when Esquire was a written mag, not men's style, but there was writing, okay. So we all know that the business model for this is just collapsed. All the advertising has moved to Facebook and Google, and you can't afford to publish a magazine anymore. And the Weekly Standard, a great publication. Finally, the billionaire who was supporting it gets tired off the Weekly Standard dies. And the answer to that from my children, I don't know if yours have the temerity to try it out on you. The answer to that is no, no, don't worry about it. All the good journalism is in the computer somewhere. It's all migrated online. There are just as many great writers. You just have to look around for them a little bit. Do you oh, buy that true. or has something been permanently lost? Peter. Something has been permanently lost. That, that simply isn't true. That, you know, there's some good reporting that's somewhere around the internet if you, if you sort through enough of it. But, but you know, I mean, uh, it takes me forever to sort through it. So there's some reasonable reporting. But there used to be a sort of a career arc to uh, yes. journalism that, 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 that not everybody followed, but that everybody knew about, and then that was kind of there as a model. Uh, you, you, the first impulse had to do with writing, usually. Uh, nobody set out to be a reporter. People sat, set out to be writers. Uh, if, if your reporting chops were only, were, you know, were, some of the people who were the best writers and kind of the worst reporters wound up as sports writers because you can sit in a chair and do your reporting. Right, uh, right. And, but, they, but they were beautiful, beautiful writers. And the idea was to be a, a, a great, you know, was to write well. And then like you'd be noticed by the slicks, by the magazines and your stuff would be picked up. And plus you had a novel in your drawer along with that bottle of Jack Daniels was there was a, a novel you were working on. And, uh, I know three or four old newspaper guys from the generation before me who did indeed write uh, 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 decent novels. Maybe they only wrote one. Maybe they never really broke into the big time. But they, but they wrote. But there was a career arc out there to be had, and that that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, uh, journalism never paid really well. It pays pitifully now. Right. And so naturally it attracts the, uh, the people without enough to do the busybodies and nosy Parkers of the world. And, and, and um, uh, yeah, no, there, there, there's been a real loss and the quality of the writing is just not good. I mean, even in, even in the New York times, uh, you know, I, I, even in the New York times, I, I see reporters who cannot, cannot tell the difference between um, um whether there, there is, you know, between quantity and number, you know, whether there is less of something or whether there are fewer of those things. Um, never you know, I really, dis I really disagree with that. I think, you do? Um, yeah, I really do. I think there are some wonderful, wonderful writers out there uh, and people younger than we are. Of course, everybody's younger than we are. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the there is a, a great line from, head of the FCC, somebody said to him, you know, he was defending television and they said, well, you know, 95% of television is crap. And he said, 95% of everything is crap. Well, that's and true. I think we're romanticizing the, uh, the greatness of the, of the, those old newspaper writers. I mean, some of them really do stand the test of time. Others don't stand up all that well. Um, uh, but at the risk of sounding like a suck up, I, I work with, several writers that I would put in, in the category of, uh, at the Atlantic now. You're uh, well, yeah. Yeah. Of a Royco or, um, you know, one of the, one of the legendary greats from the old days. And a lot of the legendary greats, as I say, weren't all that great. I mean, Pete Hamill, I'm sorry, he's lionized is, is an embodiment of that old style that PJ's talking about, but he's terrible. He's a terrible writer and always was. Does Breslin stand up? Does Jimmy Breslin stand up? 
No, well, not to me. I went back and read a bunch of him for something I was writing about two or three years ago, and it was hastily done, factually suspect, um, very self-conscious, hackneyed stuff, I thought. Okay, let me tell you two stories and just see what you do with them. And here's story number one, which was told to me by Tom Wolfe, who followed that arc. And Tom Wolfe was at the Herald Tribune when, Walter, uh, when, when John Kennedy was shot. And they turned on the television in the newsroom at the Herald Tribune and they watched Walter Cronkite and Wolfe said to himself, this is the moment. Newspapers, and I suppose in those days, there were still at least half a dozen newspapers in New York. Newspapers are done. People are getting their news from television. This is the moment when there's a decisive shift. And the next morning, as he walked from his apartment back to the Herald Tribune, offices of the Herald Tribune, and of course, nothing had been on, it had been on television nonstop all night long. He walks through Manhattan, and there are lines at every newsstand around the corner. And he said, the, what he drew from that is, no, it's not real until people read it. The written word has a power that nothing else quite touches. Okay, that's story number one. Story number two, three or 4,000 years ago, when I, was an un, when I was an undergraduate at Dartmouth College, I got a great job working reunions. I had to sit in a dorm and the alums would leave the dorm where they were staying for their three or four day reunion. They'd give me the key. And at two in the morning when they came stumbling back in, I'd give them the key back. Eight hour shift. I was there all night and I read a book a night. 30 years later, I go back for a reunion of my own and it turns out the same job still exists. But all the kids who are working reunions are not reading. They're watching movies on their laptops. All right, Andrew. Try to cheer us up about that. Boy, I'm sorry, Peter. You were right and I was wrong. I, <laughs> I think a lot of them are probably reading stuff on their laptops. I mean, You're just not worried about this. What, what are you going to do? <laughs> what good is worrying going to do? Oh, okay. Okay. PJ, will you, well, uh, do you have recourse to Tony Soprano? What are you going to do? Uh, I was uh, listening to Andy talk about the wonderful writers that exist today. And, you know, I, 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 Andy's more deeply involved with, with the printed word in, any more than I, than I am. But I do still, I am still editor of a, of a web magazine. And I do, I've got some great writers. There's no doubt about it. But there's kind of no place for them to go with, with what they do. So I was sitting listening to Andy and I was thinking, gosh, Andy, I hope you're right. No, I hope you're right. And I do know that some of those old legendary types um, were at the best very much of their moment and at their worst were, were hacks, you know. Um, but that 95% of all things are shut, is, you know, that does come. But the reading thing, there's absolutely no doubt about it. I got three kids and um, uh, two of them really just don't read. And, and, and one of those two is the, is the best student of the three the most serious, academically most serious uh, of the, wants to be an archeologist, is studying all the tough stuff in college, um, taking the hard sciences where, where her, the, 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 the girl that does read, her elder sister, is the one who's a, an art history major and will soon be driving that Uber to take you to the airport. Um, no, the kids really don't read and we've got a house full of books. We must, we, we must have 5,000 books in the house. And I, I, I've worked for years to kind of build this library because I, I've looked around for decent hardback editions, used decent hardback, when used bookstores still exist, used decent hardback editions of all the books that I've loved all my life. And, you know, and part of it was my own collecting thing, but part of it was for the kids. And can I get them to crack one? Even now, you know, when everybody's sock drawer is overorganized, when, you know, we, when we truly have run out of things to do? No. All right. Gentlemen, if a couple okay, last now, questions. Now, yeah. I'm I thought I was depressed when Peter finished his thing, and now I'm really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Andy? Yes? I'm going to paraphrase a, an email of yours. Actually, I'm not going to paraphrase it. I'm going to, I'm going to quote this. And if it offends you, we'll cut it out. But I think I can get away with it. I care less and less about politics. All I ask from any writer nowadays is some evidence that he recognizes that all of this matters. The deep sense that we're all equally under some kind of care and judgment. When I encounter a writer like that, I'm astonished and very, very grateful. Close quote. Is that... So all the stuff that we cared about in the 1980s doesn't matter? Well, explain yourself to working journalists here. <laughs> well, that's not a comment on writing or journalism. That's a comment on what people believe in now and what, what intelligent people are expected to believe. It wasn't that long ago when any intelligent person had some sort of sense of the transcendence or, or the weight of the past and, and the accumulation of great tradition and the religious traditions, particularly, say, the Catholic Church. That's all I was commenting on there, I think. And, yes. and all right. the, 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 the culture is so deeply secularized and it's so absorbed into the, the way, especially um, intelligent, well-educated, so to speak, young people think um, that, 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 that is disturbing to me. That's, that's not good. PJ. Let me add some more disturbance. Um, because not, not this only is the, this am is the I depressed Andy show. Yeah. Yeah. Not only am I depressed on, on, on the point that Andy made, and I, I really do, uh, find it like harder and harder to see some system of, of, of belief, let alone spiritual belief that some 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 coherent moral system that, that, that underlies. I mean, people want to be nice. They want to be good. Um, but they don't seem to think, you know, Andy and I have had this discussion um, uh, a number of times is that you, you, you can be a moral person while being an atheist, but it is a lot of work. It's really, you have to go around Robin Hood's barn, you know, to do it. I'm not saying it can't be done. But but it but it, it's tough, and I would prefer it if the kids believe in God, which they don't seem to do. But they also don't understand that it's meaningful, that it's important what they're covering in politics, because underneath politics, under the layers and layers and layers of politics, many of it frilly, many much of it silly, much of it frothy, is the power of the gun. Ultimately, politics is about one person's ability to force another person to do something. It all lies under, it is, it is, it is all, the basement is violence. The foundation is violence, is violence. If you get a parking ticket, you don't pay that ticket, you get a fine. If you don't pay that fine, you go to court and you get a bigger fine. If you don't pay that fine, they'll throw you in jail. If you try and escape from jail, they'll shoot you. Basically, you can't park on a double yellow line because they'll shoot you. And not enough kids remember that when they start talking about, oh, the government should do this for me. The government should do that for other people. The government should be bigger, more involved with this. We should have free this, that, and the other thing. Is, is that you are expanding that foundation of violence when you expand government. It's not just because like I'm an old fuddy-duddy and want my taxes to be lower, although I am and I do. Um, Andy on, on Abraham Lincoln in a recent essay, the ultimate concern for Lincoln was the survival of the union to which he had an almost mystical attachment, close quote an almost mystical attachment to the union. If there is a theme that runs through all of your work, PJ and Andy, from beginning to end, from young, rambunctious, boisterous, bad boys to gentlemen full of wisdom, PJ now Lord of the Manor, sitting on top of his hill, surveying acres and acres. If there's a theme that runs through all of your work, it is a, an abundance, abiding fondness for the United States of America. 
even if it's a fondness for the circus aspects of this. So imagine some socialist Bernie supporter, some one-worlder kid, your own children perhaps. What do you, what do you say? What do you say to that kid? Let's say, I'll, I'll start with you, Andy. To persuade him that the United States of America is distinctive and in some way still worth it all. Uh, you know, I think Chesterton said about patriotism, um, you love your country because it's your country. And, you know, the way you, you love your mother because she's your mother, it's not because she's the best mother or the kindest mother or the best cook or the best, you know, carpenter or whatever. Um, you love your mother because she's your mother. And that, that's the foundation of what patriotism is. And I think that that's true, but there's also something more with the United States, which is that the United States is a, actually is uniquely um, worth caring for and loving because it is the, um, the container of the great idea of the Declaration of Independence. And um, that's why people revere Lincoln still is because he, he preserved that idea and um, it's sort of a distillation, a, a grand culmination of a lot of wonderful things in the Western tradition. Um, so you can have patriot. And that, patriot and, and that idea is that idea is that all men are created equal. That's the right. central idea that you're referring and to. That, and that governments are instituted among them to preserve certain rights that are inalienable, unalienable, uh, endowed by a creator. Uh, so you can have, you can love your country, the United States, simply because you're an American and you just, you love the country you were born in and raised in and are grateful to it. And, but you can also love it, America as a intellectual proposition. PJ? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, what he said, there, there is no doubt. I mean, we, we didn't invent the idea of liberty, but we invented the idea that liberty could be organized so that a government served a free people. And at the time that Lincoln was fighting the Civil War, we were the only country in the world that could be, of, of which that could be remotely said. Although the, the, the British had a lot of liberties, or I should say the English had a lot of liberties, and some of their, and some Welsh maybe, or something, and a few lowland Scots. Although they had a lot of liberty, they were still subjects. In, in America, the government was subject to we the people. And um, we invented that idea. We are the original experiment for that idea. Without our invention of that idea, it would not exist anywhere else. And so, yes, that gives us a, 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 a you know, a, 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 something that makes us a little more than just equal to any other country uh, in the world. It makes something that gives us a sort of first among equals. And when things go wrong here, and they sometimes do, and they certainly did in Lincoln's time, and they're not doing so great right now, um, the whole world watches and says, well, China says, well, this doesn't work. You know, interesting little 200 year experiment, you know, a mere wink of the eye in Chinese sense of time. But obviously, you know, this, 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 this idea of a government serving a people and, uh, 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 oh, ha. So, okay. Then th this will be the last question. You, you've been generous with your time, but PJ raised the question of China. They outnumber us. They've got a government that seems to be able to handle, handle a virus more efficiently than, than ours. There's some doubt about whether they're telling us the truth, but they seem to have contained it. They've gotten rich. They've raised half a billion people out of poverty, not just during our lifetimes, but during the last quarter century alone, half a billion people raised out of poverty. And they've got a model that all the rest of the world is looking at. Well, China seems to work. United States, what's going over the long term? Not, I'm not asking for a Chestertonian answer. I love the United States because I love the United States. But as over the long term, who'd you put your money on? This 240-year-old constitution that we have or the rising power of China? PJ? 
all my money on the United States. And I've spent some time in China. Uh, the most time that I spent there was back before things were, before things got worse. With Xi Jinping, things have definitely gotten worse. But the Chinese, although they have, you know, they, they, they've made tremendous strides, but of course, when you begin with zero, all strides do look amazing. So, uh, I mean, you don't have to go that far outside China's wealthy cities to be back in another millennia. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's one electric wire running into that village that makes it different from what it was in 1600. Um, and the Chinese hate their system. And the Chinese, when you, you get them, you know, really talking to you and they, re, you realize, they realize you weren't going to report them uh, uh, for anything, would say, shh, the government is sleeping. Don't wake it up. Don't wake it up. Shh. You know, the, the, the mountains are high. The emperor is far away. Far away. That's when things were going well in China, you know, and, and now... Um, I don't think the Chinese are very, we may think they did a good job of controlling the, uh, uh, the outbreak from their, you know, the wet market in Wuhan. Um, uh, you know, they, they've banned undercooked bat meat and, 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 and good for them. <laughs> but I don't think the Chinese people are all that jacked about what a great job their government did on this. Mm. Andy, who's your money on? USA, USA. USA. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? No, I think I just, I, I just, um, in my experience, and I think in his, historically over the last couple of centuries, that's where all the, that's where all the safe bets are. So we are still number one. Crotchety, three crotchety old guys can still agree on that much. Cynical disappointment. Never bet against free people, especially when they've got guns. <laughs> PJ O'Rourke, man of long storied career, now editor of American Consequences, Andy Ferguson of The Atlantic. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.